singleness and dating, the third week on sex, and the final week on homosexuality. I do hope you'll come along and bring friends. These are all really personal topics to us that mean a great deal to us. And straight up front, what we need to recognize is that, that God is the creator of life. He wrote the instruction manual for life, if you like. We will do well to listen to what God has to say, which is so often different to our world, because ignoring that could have disastrous consequences. Well, we begin with uh, the model marriage, which we find in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, and it's important for us to notice up front that, that marriage is something that is created by God to fulfill his purposes. In other words, marriage is not just a human institution for us to define it however we will. Uh, lots of, uh, especially in the West, has gone really uh, wrong with marriage as they've left it up to society to decide what marriage is and it isn't. No, marriage is instituted by God. It's God who defines what it is. It is God who defines what it is for. And God says to Adam, if you look chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And God, this is God's one rule in the Garden of Eden, and God declares here that, that morality, that, that right and wrong, will be solely determined by him. And so when it comes to our thinking about marriage, it's, it's not a matter of our, our preferences, you know, for us to decide who to marry or, or, or how to treat our spouse. God's the creator. He defines what is right and wrong. He speaks authoritatively on it. And so I expect as we go through this uh, series that uh, there will be moments, perhaps even tonight, that God's word will make us a bit uncomfortable as it challenges uh, the worldly views of these topics that we've developed. I hope we will turn in repentance and believe that God's way is right. Well, first and foremost, we need to see that marriage is for serving God. Marriage is for serving God. And, and Christopher Ashe has uh, written a wonderful book with that uh, title, Married for God. It's an abridged version of a, of a longer book called Sex and the Service of God. And his, his thesis in those two books is basically that marriage and sex are created by God that we might serve God and glorify God. Now we see that actually in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now the problem for Adam here is not that he was lonely. You know, poor old Adam, still single. Now, many of us will uh, know the, the painful experience of this every time Chinese New Year rolls around, or deeper valley perhaps. You know, have you got a boyfriend yet? Girlfriend yet? As if you're somehow a, uh, you know, a half-human, uh, if, uh, if you're not yet married for some reason. And I think the reason that people think in this way is, is, is often because they actually idolize marriage. 
and they think that if you are not married, then you're, you're somehow an inferior human being. But of course, later in the Bible, Jesus will not be married, Paul will not be married, and we would be on dangerous ground if we said that they were deficient human beings. No, Adam already shares an intimate relationship with God. God walks in the garden with Adam. And if the problem for Adam was simply that he was lonely, God could have created him a friend. But what Adam needed was not just a friend, but a helper, a complementary partner. Now, need to remember here the commission that was given in chapter 1, verse 28. Just turn back the page, chapter 1, verse 28. God has created man and woman in his image, and then we read, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over everything that lives on the earth. And so the reason why it is not good for Adam to be alone is because if he is alone, he cannot be fruitful and multiply. And, and of course, one man by himself cannot exercise dominion over such a vast world. The job is too big. Adam needs a helper. He needs the woman so that he can multiply and so that together they and their descendants can fulfill God's purpose of ruling this world. And so marriage is created for the service of God. Uh, it, it's not created for the fulfillment of my personal needs. Uh, any kind of, of self-centered view of, of marriage or of, of sex, ultimately it destroys those and brings great chaos to society. See, when it's, when it's all just about fulfilling my needs, uh, filling up my loneliness, well, then I'll be angry when the other person doesn't do as I want, and I may even be tempted to leave them to find someone who will. No, marriage is about serving God. And if that's true, then of course, the, the very idea of a, a Christian marrying a non-Christian is a, is a total not, uh, contradiction. Uh, if the whole goal of marriage is to serve God together, well, how am I going to achieve that if my spouse doesn't even love God? How am I going to bring up my children to love God if my spouse doesn't? And, of course, this eliminates any selfish view of marriage where, uh, where a couple lives only for themselves as if the rest of the world doesn't exist, spending every waking moment together never at all considering how they may serve others around them. No, marriage is for serving God. Secondly, marriage is for children. I remember some, uh, some years back, uh, one of my wife's uh, friends came over to our house for a school reunion. Uh, she'd been dating her, her boyfriend for, for many years by that point, at least 10 years, I think. Uh, and they were still delaying marriage. And so I, I said to, the, to, to this uh, friend, if you delay your marriage any longer, uh, you might not be able to have any children. And she said, I have no intention of having children. I want to enjoy my life. I want my freedom. I want to travel. 
Now that misses one of the key purposes of marriage. Look what Malachi says in Malachi chapter 2. God is speaking. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Now this is uh, captured for us in, in our marriage services. It's one of the, the three key purposes of marriage. We're reminded of every, at every wedding. Uh, we're reminded, next, uh, next slide, marriage is given that they may have children and be blessed in caring for them and bringing them up in accordance with God's will to his praise and glory. And so the Bible sees children not as a, as a curse, but, but as a blessing, not as an, a, 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 simply an inconvenience to my life, but something to be sought after. Uh, Psalm 127 puts it this way. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior and the, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I have a pastor friend down in uh, Singapore. He's trying to fulfill this literally. Uh, he just had his seventh child. He's a pastor in Singapore, right, where they think if you have uh, any more than one child, then you can barely survive. And he shows that that is completely false. But some, someone's attitude towards children actually tells us a lot about what they are living for and what their marriage exists for. So yes, children are hard to bring up. Yes, children might bring some inconveniences to your life. They will inhibit your freedom to, uh, to do what you want. But they remind us that children is, that life is about relationships rather than stuff. And it's about service and not selfish desire. It's a great calling to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Marriage is for children. So I take it if we are not willing to have children, we should remain single. Now, of course, uh, there will be some here this evening who uh, will be unable to have children for various reasons, either because they will never be married or they'll be married and unable to. And I'm aware that today on uh, Mother's Day that this is going to be, could be a particularly painful uh, topic for some of us to talk about. Uh, I share your grief, and I'm really sorry to have to talk about this on such a difficult day for you. We will continue to love and care for you as a community, especially today. And yet we can rest assured that our value and our worth is, is not tied up in being a mother or being a father. We are all children of God. We've, we've been made in his image. We've been redeemed by his son. We're loved by him. And, and we can continue to trust him in every situation that he's placed us. Marriage is for children. Thirdly, we see that marriage is complementarian. Uh, verses 19 to 20, we see the search goes on for this great, uh, for this helper. And finally, the woman is found and brought to the man. And you can sense his, his sheer delight as he cries out in uh, verse 23, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. As if he, he sees his, you know, his wife walking down the aisle and he's just filled with joy. We see in these verses the, the complementarity of, of men and women, male and female. They are equal and different. Equal in dignity and value, different in gender and role. Uh, together they are created in the image of God, but they are given different roles to play. The, the man we saw is created in orientation to the world, he is to work. The woman is created in orientation to the man, she is to be his helper, which of course involves doing work. And so, by creating humanity in this way, male and female, we are in the image of God, and we, we reflect the triune nature of God. Uh, so, while God is both fa is Father and Son, uh, they're, they're equal in their divinity, they have different roles. The Father commands, the Father plans, the Son submits, the Son obeys. They're equal in their status as divine beings, they're different in their roles. And we see this complementarity expressed in marriage. One man and one woman, equal but different. Now I think it's, it's actually really vital that we get hold of this because uh, we live in a society that is, is affected uh, quite a lot by feminism. Now feminism has brought some uh, good things of course. Uh, now women can at least enjoy equal pay for the work that they do. That's just fair, isn't it? But feminism in its extreme forms can actually be very enslaving to women and even anti-women. Because by saying that a, a woman should do everything that a man does, it's actually forcing women to become men. And so women are expected to get careers like men are, often at the expense of, of their family, often they find that their children are left to the grandparents or the maid to raise so that they can do so, and she pursues her career, she delays uh, having children until it's too late and ends up in the bitter disappointment of it. Now, blessing comes from embracing who God has made us to be as men and women, and God's design for the marriage is that the man is the leader, and the woman is the helper. Complementary, but not identical. And this complementarity is what makes marriage so good, actually. Because no marriage can have two leaders. That's just a recipe for conflict. Marriage is complementarian. Fourthly, marriage, God's design for marriage is a lifelong union. Look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, they were not ashamed. Now notice firstly, this is obvious, but God's design for marriage is for a man and his wife. It's not one man with many women. It's not a man with a man or a woman with a woman. It's one man with one woman. We'll come back to this in the fourth talk. Secondly, we see that, that the marriage here is about creating a new family. A man shall leave his father and mother. And this, this leaving of, of father and mother indicates that a new family unit is being 
form because the father is the head. So as you leave the father and mother, you create your own house. Normally this will mean that you will live in your own house with your own rules. Because in, in marriage, the head of the family will no longer be your parents. It will be the husband. Now, if the man is not clear on this, then he'll be tempted in our culture, isn't it, to just uh, move in uh, with the parents, let the wife move in, and he'll be tempted to put the desires of his parents above the desires of his spouse, to the wife's dismay. And inevitably it leads to tensions and fights, especially between the mother-in-law and the wife, as the husband attempts to stand in the breach. No, from the wedding day onwards, the husband and wife uh, relationship must take precedence over every other. Of course, children are still to obey their parents, but it must be different. The wife comes first. And parents, too, need to embrace this so that when their children get married, you let them go. Well, thirdly, notice that marriage is categorised uh, by faithfulness. Verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh, and so God's design for marriage is that it is a, a permanent union, that the man and his wife, they, they hold fast together. Uh, no separation, no divorce, but a lifelong union. Uh, Jesus explains this to us in Matthew 19 on the screen. Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you not read that he created them in from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. So God's intention for marriage is that it is a lifelong union, not one that we can opt out of, when it's too difficult, or a better model comes along. Uh, in the marriage vows, we solemnly promise these words. We promise to be faithful, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And so no, what, no matter what happens in our marriage, we are never to give up, we are never to look elsewhere, we are to love for life. Sometimes people say it's a life sentence. That's not a very positive view of marriage, is it? Now, at the heart of God's design for marriage is a one flesh, intimate union. It's so, so close that there's no longer you and I in marriage. It's no longer you know, your money, your parents, my money, my parents. No, there's no, there's no more I, there's no more you in a marriage. It's us. It's, it's our family. It's our money. Our home. Our problems. Our joy. And we see here that this union is to be expressed most perfectly in God's good gift of sex. The man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And so sex is a good thing, is invented by God. It's created to be enjoyed, and not just for the sake of having children, 
but to, to strengthen uh, and, uh, the love and the joy and the intimacy that is in a marriage. Now, if you like, it's the, it's the glue that, that, that holds a marriage together. But it's only safe within the safe confines of marriage, of a marriage covenant. Sex within marriage is, is so beautiful. It's so enriching. Sex outside of marriage hurts so much. We'll see this in talk three. Well, Genesis ends with this beautiful picture in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of, of the total intimacy and trust that two people can share. They're vulnerable in every way. Every flaw is visible as they stand naked before one another. And yet there's nothing to fear. Nothing to be ashamed of. Because an unconditional commitment has been made. Now I think this is uh, really important for us to get as we, as we think about, uh, about marriage. See, at the heart of marriage, we often get this wrong, we think that love is at the heart of marriage. Love is not at the heart of marriage. At the heart of marriage is faith, trust. Marriage is about entrusting our life into the hands of another person whom we love and to whom promises have been made. And so because marriage is, is built on trust, it's not possible to build a, a healthy relationship or a healthy marriage without being able to trust the other person. And this vulnerability will begin in a small way in dating and it will become total by marriage. And so for the man, they have to initiate the relationship. They make themselves very vulnerable to rejection as they do so. Uh, the girl who's asked, well, they need to make themselves very vulnerable if they agree. What will this man be like? And so to both, as they step out in, in faith, if you like, to, to trust this other person, there's always going to be the potential for hurt. And therefore, a fear of entering relationships. But we must grasp that this vulnerability is not a bad thing. In fact, it is good. It is what is right at the heart of marriage. Some of us here today are too scared to ask out uh, the girl that we like. Some of us here today are too afraid to say yes to the person who's asked us. Well, if you do want to be married one day, there is no other way but that you make yourself vulnerable, that you ask, that you say yes. But there will always be the potential for hurt. That brings us to the second point then this evening, fallen marriage. So as we, we think about making ourselves vulnerable in marriage, of course it's important that we are wise. Because this uh, perfect picture that we see of marriage in Genesis 2 is not the world in which we now live. Uh, in Genesis 3, we see a, a world that is wrecked by sin as, as, as the creation order is reversed, as, as, as Eve eats from the tree and, and Adam, who is, who's there with her, fails in his loving leadership to lead the family. 
The result is sin enters the world and the consequences are devastating. Uh, as they eat in Genesis 3, we say they're, they're, they're no longer unashamed. They, 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 they begin to hide their nakedness from one another. Now that, that God's good order is overturned, Adam and Eve, uh, rather than having trust for one, other, one another, they see one another as a threat. And the vulnerability is no longer safe. Then there's the blame. Instead of taking responsibility for the sin, the, the man blames the woman. See that in chapter 3, verse, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So blame enters the relationship and then not long after we have conflict and curse in the marriage relationship. Look at God's curse in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, notice in that, that curse how, how God's good design is, is reaffirmed, but now with pain. The husband's still the leader, but pain enters this relationship. There's pain in childbearing, and there's conflict within the marriage. We said, your desire shall be for your husband. And so, for the wife, there will always be this perpetual temptation to, to grasp at the rule, to, to, to control their husband, and lead the marriage. We see that a lot, don't we? But we're told, he shall rule over you. Uh, the husband's temptation is to, to assert his strength, not in loving service, but rather to take control. And so fallen marriages are no longer always places of, of mutual love, but often a battleground where two sinful people fight to get their own way. And so as we consider about marriage, we need to have right expectations. Uh, because of our sin, we live under the curse of God. And part of that curse of God is that he will frustrate us from ever achieving the perfect marriage of Genesis chapter 2. And God does this deliberately so that we would find our, our meaning and our purpose not in a marriage that we've idolised, but only in Him. It's a great book you might have heard of called What Did You Expect? It's a great title for a book on marriage. And the book addresses our rather naive thoughts that every one of us is going to find the perfect spouse. The book's realistic. We are sinful people. Our spouse is sinful too. And the closer that you get to someone, the more that they're, that, that they're theirs and your, your selfishness, your, your pride, your impatience, it will all be exposed, especially when you have your first child. And the tensions and the fights will be inevitable in a marriage. And so as you go from singleness to marriage, you might solve some problems and you will enter others. Now at its extreme, this uh, human sin leads to broken marriages. Now it's worth uh, pointing out that in the Old Testament, there were laws that allowed divorce and they were motivated by, uh, by love to limit the harm 
that a, broke, that a the broken marriage could cause. Uh, it's really uh, uh, terrible in Australia, I think where I'm from, that over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that is certainly true of my extended family. But though God lovingly allows divorce in the Old Testament to limit sin, divorce, we find, is something that God actually hated. Look at, again at Malachi chapter 2 on the screen. God says, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And so as the, the, the Pharisees come with their, their question in, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, on the next slide, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any purpose? Of course, Jesus' reply is very firm. Divorce was never God's intention at the beginning. Uh, God's intention is that whatever he joined together, it would never be, be separated. And then God, uh, Jesus clarifies for us the reason for those divorce laws in the Old Testament. He says to them in uh, verse 8, it was because of hard, your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And so Jesus is showing us here that there's only ever one reason that a marriage ends in divorce. And that is sin. It may be the sin of one party. More likely it will be the sin of both. Perhaps it's more one party than the other. But how are we going to work it out? But sin is always the cause of a broken marriage. And it's a tragedy. And it ought not to be a reality among Christians who know the gospel of grace. And yet it is a painful reality that some in our church even know all too well. They need our love. But I want you to notice Jesus' teaching here about remarriage. We're told that to divorce and then remarry while our former spouse is still alive, it's adultery. Because in, in remarriage, what are you doing? You're, you're joining yourself in union to someone else who is not your spouse that you pledge lifelong commitment to. It's adultery. Now notice there's one exception clause here at the end, verse 9, except for sexual immorality, because if your spouse has already committed adultery with someone else, well, adultery's already happened. Your divorce hasn't caused adultery. Now, the only other grounds that we find in Scripture for uh, remarriage is the case where a non-Christian spouse deserts the marriage and applies for divorce. The non-Christian has to initiate. And it's only in those limited cases where remarriage is allowed. Otherwise, unless the spouse dies, then it, uh, the Bible is quite clear that remarriage is not allowed. 
Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. And so God passionately desires that our marriages are places of faithfulness and steadfast love. In a Christian marriage, we must be quick to forgive. We must be uh, fast to be gracious, always to assume the best, always to try and overlook the faults, quick to be thankful and gentle, slow to be critical and harsh. Uh, we read these, these verses in uh, Colossians. These were preached at, at my wedding. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so some of us this evening will be in relationships or in marriages where you are presently on the downward spiral of tension and conflict. Let me urge you, don't let it grow. There's only one way to stop the downward spiral, to restore peace to the relationship, and it is to do these things. To refuse to hold the grudge, to forgive where the, where the hurt has been caused, to be patient when people don't change as fast as we wish, to be full of love even when it is not deserved, to be humble and assume that the fault could have been mine as well. And notice all the foundation for these actions. It's what the Lord has done for us. He's forgiven us. He's made us his precious children. He's showered us with his grace and his love. Fallen marriage. Well, it brings us uh, to the third point, the last uh, point this evening, and that is fulfilled marriage. And what we have to see is that despite our brokenness and despite our, our failure to, to perfectly live out God's design for our marriages, despite our, our unfulfilled desires perhaps uh, in longing for marriage, we see that we, we need not despair because, because ultimately our, our marriages are about something so much bigger than us. Uh, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see all throughout the Old Testament that, that, that marriage is, is used of a, as a picture of the relationship between God and his people. God is the husband who, who enters into a, a covenant relationship with his people Israel, who are his bride. He, he chooses them out of all the other peoples. He, he showers his, his love and affection upon them. And in the Old Testament, in response, Israel is unfaithful again and again. Even as, as they form that covenant relationship at, at Mount Sinai, Israel is there whoring after other gods, building the golden calf. It's as if they were sleeping with someone else on their wedding night. And yet God 
in his love and grace, continues to love his faithless bride. It's pictured so beautifully in the book of Hosea. God cannot give up his wayward people. And even as he sends them into to exile, he promises through, through Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 31, a, to bring about a new covenant relationship with his people based on his unconditional love and forgiveness. And all of that Old Testament background is fulfilled as the Lord Jesus comes to be the perfect husband of his people. To, to bring us back into this, this new covenant relationship with him. And we see that, of course, in Ephesians 5. might like to turn open to Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul will quote there what we've seen from Genesis 2. He says in verse uh, 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We know that's about marriage in Genesis, but Paul applies it in the most unexpected of ways. Of course, in verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so that the Bible is saying that the, that the ultimate marriage to which every earthly marriage is pointing uh, towards and models is the marriage between Jesus and his people. Jesus is the ultimate husband. God's people are the ultimate bride. And that's why we see in Genesis 2 that God has designed marriage in such a specific way, ordered and uh, a new family and, and permanent and, and united. Uh, all of that design is to help us grasp something of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our relationship with him is ordered Jesus and the church are not the same. We're not equal leaders in the relationship. Jesus is the head and we obey him. It's a, it's, a, it's a distinct relationship. The relationship between Jesus and his people takes priority over every other relationship because we are brought into a whole new family, God's family. And it's meant to be a permanent relationship. The relationship between Jesus and his people is to be eternal not broken even by death itself. And it is to be perfectly united. Uh, a relationship between Jesus and his people that is so uh, intimate that he lives in us, that we live in him as we experience his, his, his committed love to us that would take him even to the cross. And that is a great encouragement to every one of us this evening no matter who we are. Because it assures us that in the end, life is not about getting married. It's all about Jesus. And so whether I'm single or I'm married or I have a good marriage or I have a bad marriage or I'm, or I'm divorced or I'm widowed, we can all have the most perfect, the most intimate relationship that we could possibly ever hope for. We are loved more by Christ than we could ever be loved by anyone in this world. And even if I, I never get married in this world, I've not missed out because I will be married one day, be married to Christ himself. It's another great book called Not Yet Married. 
because that's what we are, not yet married to Christ. But we will be. And it's in the light of this, this great and glorious reality that our, our earthly mar uh, marriages are to reflect, dimly perhaps, just how glorious and perfect is the relationship between Jesus and his people. Our marriages are to have Christ at the centre. They are to glorify him as we live out a relationship that is shaped by the gospel itself. Well, what does that look like? Now, Paul first addresses the wives in this passage in verse 22. He says, Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. And so the wife's role in the marriage is to submit to the loving leadership of the husband. And not just outward submission and a bitter heart, but a willing and joyful yielding to his loving leadership as we would also love and serve Jesus. Now, of course, uh, that kind of submission doesn't mean that the wife's opinion never matters. Any loving husband will listen to the opinion of their wife, take it to heart. But it does mean that the wife must accept his decisions and follow his lead in everything. Now notice the passage doesn't say here, yeah, submit to your husbands when he's loving, when he makes wise decisions, you know, when he's not a total idiot, but when he's an idiot you can, you can, you can make it up your own, your own way. And, and this is uh, emphasised even more strongly in the book of, of, uh, of 1 Peter. Look what uh, Peter writes here. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing that you wear. Uh, I don't think that means you can't dress up on your wedding day, right? Uh, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is, in God's sight, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that is frightening. Now, that is very strong language, isn't it? Sarah obeyed her husband as her Lord, Master. And she's held up for us here as the most beautiful woman. Much more beautiful than just wearing some nice clothes. And uh, here we find, uh, sisters, uh, the very essence of biblical womanhood. Gentle, quiet submission in the church and in the home. It is so different, isn't it, to what the world teaches the world says, be strong, assert yourself, fight for your rights, be beautiful on the outside. But this is beautiful, isn't it? And this is wise. And so when the husband says, darling, let me wash the dishes tonight, the wife 
submits <laughs> and watches TV. <laughs> or the husband says, darling, let me get up at 2 a.m. and put the baby back to sleep. She submits and rolls back asleep. Or when he says, darling, I think we should move to this other country to serve Jesus. She submits. In everything, she submits. Unless he asks her to disobey Jesus. Now, of course, submitting to a loving husband is fairly easy, isn't it? So you should consider very carefully who you marry. You have to marry someone that you can respect. Someone that you can submit to in this way. Someone that you can follow. But even then, even if you have the most loving husband, there will be times when submission is very difficult. But God's design for marriage is this. And a marriage can only be a united partnership as we embrace our God-given roles and live in this way. If there's two leaders, there's only going to be conflict and competition. Now, it may be frightening to make yourself vulnerable to another person in such a way. And that's why uh, Peter mentions in the last verse there, you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. Because it is scary, isn't it? It's terrifying. But it is good. Well, if you think that the wife's job is hard, now Paul turns to the husband's in verse 25. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, if we are men this evening and we're thinking, oh, marriage is, is great. If I get married, I now have my own personal slave. <laughs> well, the Bible has news for you. Because in the Bible, loving uh, leadership is not about having people serve you. It's about you serving them. Leadership is sacrificial service. The husband's job is to love his wife like Jesus loved the church. And how did Jesus love his people? How does the, the head of the church treat the church? He sacrificed everything. He loved sacrificially. He leads the glories of heaven and he gets crucified on a cross. There was nothing that he would not give for his people. There was no effort that he would spare. His love was total and his love was costly and his love was unconditional. It wasn't uh, uh, you know, that Jesus said, oh, never mind, you sinners, I'm not going to die for you. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and in health. Notice it doesn't say, again, love your wife when she submits to you. But when she's difficult and disrespectful, then you can ignore her. No, Jesus dies for us when we were rebelling against him. And he calls husbands to do the same. To love unconditionally. To love sacrificially. And so, uh, brothers, here then is the essence of biblical manhood. It's not about going to the gym and looking buff. I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> and it's not about being an expert in computer games 
or being good at building things or fixing things or having a fast car that has a, the loudest exhaust pipe in Malaysia. <laughs> Biblical manhood is about sacrificial service in the church, in the community, and in the home. And so if you would be a husband, then you need to find a girl for whom you are willing to sacrifice everything that you have to put her needs first. Someone for whom you're willing to sacrifice your career and sacrifice your hobbies, your time playing computer games, your sleep, anything at all, everything for her good. And remember, this leadership involves bringing up the children to know and love the Lord. It's not the wife's job to bring up the children to know and love the, world, the, the Lord. They're the helper, remember? They help you, but as the head of the family, it's your job to do. It's right there in Ephesians 6 verse 4, isn't it? Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the father's job, not the wife's job. And so if you would be the head of the family, you are to lead it sacrificially and you are to lead it spiritually. You lead through reading the Bible and praying for your spouse and, and, and with and for your spouse and your children. And if you're in a relationship and you're not doing that, you should start now. And in all this, we imitate Christ. Look what Christ did and why did he sacrifice himself in verse 26 and 27? His goal is that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And it's as if God is inviting us to, to think about the bride on the wedding day in all her beauty and see there what Christ has done for the church, as through the word of God, through the gospel, he washes away every sin that stains and makes us his perfect spotless bride. And verse 28 says here, in the same way, husbands, it tells us that we are to love our wives in the same way, not by dying for them on the cross, but by pointing them constantly to that gospel word which will sanctify and purify our wife. The husband's primary concern must be for the holiness of his wife. He must, he must lead her, pray for her, read the Bible, bring her to church. He must do all that he can so that when Jesus returns, she will be presented trusting in that gospel word and so clothed in all righteousness and purity. That doesn't mean he can ignore her physical and emotional needs. That's there in verse 28 also. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So the husband is to delight in his wife. He is to nourish her and cherish her. He is to long to see her grow and, and flourish under your care. Not to neglect her while you go and do your work or abandon her while you go and play with your friends or as you give your affection to another. The husband's job is hard, isn't it? And even if you have a godly wife, it will be hard. 
And it's in those hard times we need to keep looking back to the sacrificial love of Jesus shown to us on the cross unconditionally and then pray that we can be like him, that we will therefore be the first to forgive, the first to love, even when I have to swallow my pride. Well, tonight we've seen the big picture for marriage. And of course, as we hold up this great standard, we will all feel as failures. We're all works of progress. And as we feel our failure, we need to look again at the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's, who's washed away all of our sins by his blood. And we continue to trust in him. And with that forgiveness in our hearts, put Christ at the centre of our relationships and keep living for him. As we, as we do that, we will shine forth to the world as a glorious showcase, if you like, this beautiful relationship, the love of Jesus for his people. And this truth we must hold on to, no matter what our marital status may be, we remind ourselves always, we have the perfect marriage already, Jesus, our head, is the one we can delight in. He is the one we must submit to. And he is the one that we must serve. Well, finally, we come to the consummation of marriage. And the book of Revelation ends with these wonderful words we will cry out on the last day. Look on the screen. Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. An angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Might be that this evening you came here today as someone investigating Christianity. Maybe your friend invited you so that you'll know a Christian perspective on marriage. Great that you're here. What this passage is saying is that it's as if Jesus at the cross as he died for you made a wedding proposal. He's invited you to be his bride, to be his people and to Enjoy with him this perfect, intimate relationship. And as you turn to him, you will find fulfilled all of those desires that we have, that no human marriage will ever perfectly fulfill. Will you turn to him and will we continue to serve him in our relationships? Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for making us in your image that we might share an intimate relationship with you, our Creator. Father, we thank you for the gift of, of marriage and relationships. We thank you 
for this perfect marriage that you have given us with the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrificial love for us at the cross. We thank you that you have washed us clean of all of our sins. We pray that as we, uh, as we consider our relationships and our marriages, that you would help us to trust in your ways and to be a glorious example to the world of Christ and the church. We pray this that many more may come to find him as their husband and have all their desires fulfilled in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.